Well, good morning and welcome to Journey, uh, everyone. I uh, have still got the cough, probably heard me uh, lingering from my flu over Christmas and uh, talked to my doctor this week uh, again, and uh, he gave me some more. It's going to take time. But I was asking him about this pandemic and this time. I said, did anybody see this coming? And he said, well, we knew it could happen. But I was just sitting here thinking, you know, isn't it amazing that if it had to happen, if it was going to happen, that God waited until the time that we had amazing resources and abilities like video uh, to see my son in Hong Kong and, and live streaming and Facebook Live to see, uh, to have people out at home worshiping with us. So it's great to see you today if you came out. For those of you at home, I don't know if you know this or not, but we actually can see you guys right where you are. Nice pajamas. Looks great. Enjoy the breakfast. I'm just kidding. We, we really can't see you. But I can imagine, I know there are people gathered around. I want to say hi to mom and dad. Can I do that? Say hi to mom and dad at home because they always watch us uh, online. Anyway, little fun. Yeah, we're going to wrap up a series we've been in for a, a couple weeks now called Pray Like Jesus. And uh, today we're going to be wrapping it up by talking about the latter part of Jesus' prayer in John 17 about Jesus praying for non-believers. And, uh, you know, this is really, I think this is... Uh, uh, it's been a great study, but also this is a powerful lesson for us today. And I really want you to, to let this soak in because this is to the church today. It really is to all of us. Uh, it's to me, it's to you, it's to our church family as a whole. Uh, so let's, let's try to soak it all in. You know, I'm familiar with a church, another church that's experiencing division right now. Uh, they've had some issues that nobody expected or longed for, but they recently had a transition of senior ministry. Uh, there was some confusion as to why and how all that came about and happened, as there oftentimes is. In the middle of all that, additional staff have been let go and some other changes have been made. And there is a lot of confusion and, and mistrust in the church. And I just happened to, I don't often do this, but I just happened to click online uh, the other day to see their service. I didn't watch it all, just saw the first part. And, uh, and this past Sunday, one of the elders took the stage to assure the congregation that everything had been worked out Everything was fine. It's time to move forward. And, you know, even to an outsider, though, the words sounded a little bit hollow and a little bit empty. And I was kind of doubting, you know, if the words really brought a lot of unity in that moment. Not surprisingly, some people have left the church. Others are talking about it, thinking about it, not seeing a lot of new faces in the worship. And the worst thing is that all the energy of the church is now being spent trying to shore things up and to bring the church back together. I'm sure Satan is elated that all of this has come about to hamper the work and ministry of that good church. You know, today we're studying the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. And like we've said before, this is right before Jesus' arrest. Jesus is praying to his father with his disciples, probably gathered around him. He's praying for three things. He's praying for himself praying for believers, and he's praying for non-believers to come to faith. And we've been talking about how important prayer is and how the prayer of Jesus reveals his priorities, the priority of making sure that he was connected strongly to God, his relationship with his God, praying for ourselves, the, the importance of connecting with other believers and their relationship with God, we talked about last week, and, and then today praying about the lost, the three priorities I believe that Jesus had. And so as we've kind of walked through this, last week we talked about praying for other believers, and we talked about the importance of unity in the church, and that Jesus is praying for unity among believers. 
Today we're going to be talking about Jesus praying for non-believers, but it's kind of interesting that Jesus also emphasizes, emphasizes the fact that the lost coming to Christ is actually dependent upon the actions of the saved. Let me repeat that because I don't think we grasp that sometime as believers, that the lost coming to Christ is actually dependent upon the actions of the saved. That's a pretty important thing to think about. And so because of that, once again, Jesus talks a lot about unity. So let's pick it up in John chapter 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, as we said before, Christ has been praying for believers, but in verse 20, he acknowledges that he is not just praying for those disciples gathered around him. He's not just praying for the larger group that will come together in a few uh, days here, the 120 in the upper room. He's, all, he's not just praying for you and I, he is praying for every man, woman, and child who will ever become a believer. He is praying for everyone, all those who will believe in him. And the the faith of those people will come from the message of believers, but will also come from their example of unity. And so he prays that they all would be one. And again, he hammers the theme of unity once more. Unity is a blessing to us. I love to live in unity. I love it when people get along. Unity brings glory to God. We talked about glorifying God a couple weeks ago. But unity is also attractive to those who have not yet given their lives to Jesus Christ. It is attractive to lost people because we're all looking for something meaningful to be a part of. It's a really hard sell to try to get non-believers to come to church when the church is divided or when there is conflict or when there's disagreements. And believe me, they know. How do they know? Because we go out and tell them. Because the word gets out very quickly, and it hurts and damages the cause of Christ. There are some people who are outside the church who are looking for something to excuse themselves. They have a a feeling inside. They have a little, I don't want to know if it's guilt or something that tells them they should, but when they hear a reason not to, that's the excuse they're looking for. Some reason to accuse the church of hypocrisy or being fake or give themselves a pass. Not that they're bad people, they're just human. That's how we are. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Wouldn't it be great if the word on the street was that, wow, those people at Journey Church love one another, as opposed to So those people in Journey Church can't get along, so why should we go and see what's going on there? We need to be known as a people who love one another. Love and unity are identifying marks of believers that attract non-believers. And so in setting up the prayer for non-believers, he's praying, first of all, for believers that we would be unified, a unity that would bring those outside the family into unity as well. No longer are they outsiders. No longer are they non-believers, but they're believers and they're family members. 
Psalm chapter 133 says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. How good and pleasant. We are better together. We get more done when we work together. And people want to be apart whenever we're working together. It is attractive, naturally attractive to people on the outside. But unity is difficult sometimes. It's hard for us to either kind of get our head around about what it looks like. But let me tell you where unity starts. And the best example we see anywhere is with God. And that is in the the Trinity. The Trinity is a great example of unity. In fact, the word unity is almost there. It's almost like tri-unity, but it's Trinity. And it's a collection of the Godhead. There's singular leadership in the Trinity. And yet there, there is plural leadership as well. Singular leadership because the acknowledged head of the Trinity is who? It's God the Father. But also there is Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they're all equal, but the Father is obviously the head. That's that's why there can be unity, because there's acknowledgement of that. Another great example to see that is in the home. In the home, mother and father are equal. One is not better or worse than the other. Lesser or greater, they're both equal there. But the Bible says the husband is to be the leader in the home. You know, at one point in heaven, there was unity and peace. This is before Satan wanted power and authority. He rebelled. He caused division and disunity. And because of that, he and one-third of the angels were cast out of heaven. They were thrown to the earth. And now we got to mess with them down here, causing disunity. But one day, God's going to correct all that as well, right? Division is demonic. And whenever we're divisive, we are demonic ourselves. Now, there's no division in heaven. Everybody's unified under the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the angels. They're all on point. They all have a mission, and they all acknowledge the authority of the Heavenly Father. Now, since unity is so important in attracting lost people to Jesus, and since we got to kind of figure out how do we come together because we're different, we talked about that last week, how do we do that? Let me tell you what unity is and what it isn't. First of all, what it's not. Unity is not uniformity. We're all different. We're not trying to be identical. We're different. We're not cookie cut. We're not going to think the same or act the same or be gifted the same way. We're all going to be different. Like the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all unified, but they are not uniform. They are different and they are distinct personality. They have different roles, but they all work together. They are unified. We don't all have to be identical to be in unity. That'd be super boring when you think about it, if we all were identical and didn't think any differently sometime. You know, let me, let me tell you another example. In prison, you know, in prison, hopefully you've never been there. I haven't, except to visit. Um, but in prison, there's uniformity. Everybody gets a uniform, right? Everybody looks the same. Uh, <laughs> they all have the same schedule. They have to get up at the same time. They all eat the same diet. They all have, live in the same type of cell. It's not fun. Nobody wants to live in a prison, all right? Christianity is not a prison. In Christianity, there's going to be differences. There's going to be different cultures. There's going to be different languages. There's going to be different music and different worship styles. It's going to happen. My son, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about worship or something. He said, Dad, I don't like any song written after 1830. I'm like, I don't even, I don't even know a song written before 1830. I don't... I don't know what that means, you know, but, but that's him, and he's, he loves that, and they go to a, a very traditional church uh, over there in Hong Kong. So we're very different, you know, there's not uniformity, and yet we're all to be one. We are one. Secondly, unity is, is relational, not organizational. 
It is relational. We talked last week that unity comes from two places, right? The Bible, the Word of God, and our relationships. But unity is relational, not organizational. We work together, but we don't agree on everything. We, we agree on the Word of God as our ultimate authority and truth, but there are secondary doctrinal issues that we'll disagree on. It's okay to disagree on whether there are literal or figurative days of creation. Was it seven 24-hour days or six 24-hour days? Or were they longer? We don't know that. It's okay to disagree about that. It's okay to disagree on the differing views of the return of the Lord. Is, it all, is there going to be a rapture? Is it just all going to happen? It's okay to disagree on those things. There are a lot of other things we can disagree on. You know, we're not a cult. The cult is the, is the only place where everybody agrees on everything. We're not a cult. We're all different, but we're relational. We are not unified because we sign a form, a piece of paper, because we're members. We are unified because of our relationship and love for each other and our love for Christ. That is what causes unity in the body. Thirdly, unity is not around our methods. And this is one that we get hung up on a lot. There are principles from God's word that never change. They do not change. The word is the truth. Principles don't change, but methods always change. You know, I think back to times when I've seen people get mad cause divisiveness and problems, leave the church and try to get other people to leave the church with them over methods or ways of doing something. We've probably all seen that. The most recent, it happened down through time, but the most recent were what I call the worship wars, you know? The worship wars about kind of music and everything like that, about methodology and changing styles. For some people, there is a right way, and if someone does it differently, it's automatically the wrong way. And that simply isn't true. When someone tells me the way it is, I always think that's the way you see it is. It's not necessarily the way it is. And we have to understand that methods are going to be different. Several years ago, there was a parenting model, a, a, a lessons entitled Growing Kids God's Way. And it was pretty hardcore stuff. I mean, it really was. I happen to agree with most of it. And, uh, and we practiced uh, some of that, not all of it. It was pretty good. But you know what? There, it's not the only way to raise a kid. It's not necessarily God's way just because that, that's your way, right? There are different ways, and we're all responsible to do that. Uh, you know, methodology, methods change, and cultural things change down through time. For example, in the Bible, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. As a custom in that day, you saw somebody, you kissed them on both sides of the cheek. You know, in normal times in our world, most of us don't kiss. We might hug Today, in our world, we don't touch. You know, you might get a bump, elbow, something, a wave. It's about it, you know. Methods have changed. They're all going to change. Culture is going to change. Unity is not about uniformity, organization, or methods. So what is unity? Unity is pretty important. First of all, it's having God at the center. When God is at the center of our lives, we find a point to unify on. We find a focus, a goal. He is the unity focus of our unity. A great example of that is in marriage. If God is at the center of my life and God is at the center of Lori's life and we're both growing closer to God, guess what? We're automatically growing closer to him. And the same thing is true in the church life. If God is at the center of all of our hearts, then we will be growing closer together and more unified. Our focus is not on ourselves, not on our preferences. It's on God. And that gives us a basis for unity and growing together. Third, secondly, unity is the result of, ha- of loving and humble service. Loving and humble service. Humble and loving people do not fight. 
Have you ever seen someone who was humble and loving cause a problem? Never. They may graciously step back from an unnecessary confrontation. They're going to just let it go. It's not worth arguing about. They will lovingly and carefully take a stand on unbendable issues. They don't, they're not a pushover, but they're not going to argue and be divisive. They're not going to recruit other people to be on their side. They just keep on serving and loving. That is a big part. It's the result of loving and humble service. Thirdly, unity is power for a cause or a mission. It is power for a cause or a mission. When everybody's pulling together for a common cause, there is unity and there's energy. Have you ever been a part of something new and fresh? Starting an organization, starting a church, whatever it might be, when there is something new and the cause is pressing and peaceful, a passion about it, I mean, there is no disunity. Everybody's moving together. Things are happening. You get momentum. I love the story in Genesis chapter 11. After the flood, the people got off the boat, or Moses and his, excuse me, Noah and his family got off the boat, and they began to multiply and quickly fill the earth and repopulate the earth again. And they came together and they said this. You've probably read this before. Let's build a city with a tower that reaches to heaven and make a name for ourselves. Now, now what they were trying to do is they were trying to become their own gods. It wasn't something God wanted to happen. And so the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Nothing they plan to do will be impossible if as one people with the same language, they work together, they will do it. And so you know what happened, probably. He came down, confused their languages, creating the nations, they divided, they went off and populated the whole earth at that point. But God said, if they are together, they're unstoppable. And when we have a mission and a focus, it, it, it gives us unity. You know, I've noticed that churches oftentimes go through phases All organizations go through these, but churches go through in a unique way sometimes. In a new church or a church plant, there's a lot of enthusiasm and energy for reaching the lost, bringing other people in. We love what's happening, and we want other people to be a part of that. But as a church grows older and more established, that energy and unity goes away. It goes away because people become comfortable and set in their ways and their method, even though their methods may have been cutting edge at one point, suddenly their methods, you know, they, they don't really, they're not popular anymore. Things begin to change and then people begin to complain. But the point, point is, when you lose the focus of your energy and your passion, the unity disappears with it. You know, there's something that I've been thinking about, we've been talking about with staff, that as this pandemic eases, we are all going to need to view ourselves as a church plant. We're all going to have to think about that, that we're going to rebuild the body of Christ here at Journey Church. We have people, but many of them are scattered, and as people feel more free to come out, if we could just regain that energy that we have had in the past about reaching lost people for Jesus and think of ourselves as a church plant, I got a feeling we're going to see God do some incredible things here. That's the passion Jesus had for his church. He wanted his church to have God at the center. He wanted his church to be a beacon of loving service and be laser focused on the mission of winning the lost. And you know what? It worked. It worked. You know what happened? A few weeks after Jesus' prayer, after his uh, resurrection, the believers were unified. They were praying in one place, in one accord. The Holy Spirit came upon them because they were unified, and the church began. Do you think if they had been divided, the Holy Spirit would have come upon them? Absolutely not. 
The Holy Spirit came because they were one in Christ and praying and faith and were unified. And the church began to go crazy. The church had no property. They had no political power. They had no money, but they were unified around their mission and they turned the world upside down. 2,000 years later, Christianity is the biggest movement ever in history of the world. Never been a movement like Christianity. Today, the Bible, the focus of our faith, our hope, is the most translated and and purchased book in the world. The Bible. Christianity has changed the world. And that kind of movement and that kind of energy is attractive to people. The world longs to see something that is meaningful, that is bigger than they are, that they can give their life to, and that really matters to the people that are part of it. So maybe the world is not convinced that they, don't, that they need Jesus because so many people who are Christians don't act like he's that important to them. Maybe the world's not convinced that they need Jesus because so many of us don't act like he's that important to us. And what would happen if we did? Maybe if we were more excited about Jesus and more concerned about their eternity, maybe then they would be more interested in Jesus. Jesus said that the world, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That the world might know. So the world would know. Does the world know in the way you live your life and the way you pray for them? So Jesus' prayers for the lost. He doesn't want anyone to be saved. Verse 24, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. So Jesus' prayer here was that everyone would be saved, there would be in heaven with him, and they all would see his glory. That everyone would see his glory. Before we can show the glory of God to others, we have to have seen the glory of God. Have you seen the glory of God lately? Let me read a passage of scripture to you where one man, Isaiah, saw the glory of God. Isaiah 6, in the year that King King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That is a picture of the glory of God. The glory that he wants every one of us to see. His incredible presence, his holiness, his salvation, that sin, our sin has been atoned for. And he wants to touch us and heal us and cleanse us. That is his prayer that none would be lost the Bible says he, he, he isn't interested in anyone being lost, but everyone come to repentance. Everyone. And if you are not currently a Christian, Jesus wants to cleanse your life and to make you whole again. Because here's the issue. Even though the world as God made it was perfect, it was stained with sin. And it continues down through time. The nature of sin in all of us draws us in as Satan corrupts us. 
We all inherit this rebellion, rebellious sin nature. Our sin condemns us to be eternally separated from God, eternal death. But God wanted to remedy that, and so God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world to live a perfect life and then to die a horrible death on a cross, giving his life as a substitute to pay for the sins of everyone. And he invites us to come and put our faith and our trust in him as our Lord and Savior. Every one of us know that here. I know, we all know that. But are we living that? Are we sharing that word with other people? And let me tell you, you know, we, we say, uh, we hear the stats that many, most people believe in God. Most people believe that Jesus, Jesus is God's son. It's a lot more than that. That's where we start, but it's more than that. Coming to Christ demands not only believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, but that we are lost without him, that he is the only remedy for our sin, the only hope we can't save ourselves. It demands that we believe that, but then we repent or turn from our sin and our past lifestyle, that we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, that we are baptized for the forgiveness and the removal of our sins. That's what coming to Christ demands. And if you have not done that, then you're not a follower of Christ, even though you may believe that God exists and Jesus exists. It's a lot more than just believing. The Bible says that demons believe and they tremble, but they're not going to be saved because they have not made a commitment to Christ. And you also need to know that Jesus cared enough about you personally to die for you. And we here at Journey Church, we care about you too. We want you to find Jesus and one day be with him and his family in heaven forever. And that's why Jesus prayed for you, if that's your condition. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus is praying for the lost. For those, they can't hear him, obviously, but God hears. And God begins to draw people to himself. And God draws people to himself (laughs) through you and I. And Jesus is glorified in us as we live faithfully for him and share the message. You know, we talked earlier about the Lord's Prayer, and we said that in the Lord's Prayer, we pray for the kingdom of God to come here on earth, and one day it will. One day our world will end as we know it, and the kingdom will come. But right now we pray for the kingdom to come for one person at a time, for the lost to be saved, (coughs) and come to the knowledge of Jesus. Just like Jesus is making intercession for you before the Father, he promises he is, we are to make intercession for those who are lost. We're to pray for them, that God would open their eyes of understanding, that the Holy Spirit would convict them, that they would be attracted to Jesus and the church. But let me tell you, that doesn't always happen unless someone nudges them spiritually, unless someone introduces a topic. That's when God begins to move in someone's life, and that's where you and I come in. Meanwhile, we need to live our lives in a way that does that, to live in unity, in harmony with other believers, to live an attractive and pure lifestyle, and as a church, be unified to show the world that Jesus is worth giving our lives for, that we invite people to come and see Jesus in our worship services. You know, I I almost believe that inviting people to church is a lost art. I really do. I don't think we do very well at that. When this thing is over, and let me just say, this pandemic does not exempt people from coming to know Jesus. In fact, it will prohibit 
It's not going to be an excuse. Somebody say, well, I never heard because of the pandemic. That's not going to work with God. Or we didn't tell anybody because of the pandemic. That's not going to work. We have to invite people to come and see Jesus. We need to be available and initiate spiritual conversations about Jesus or their needs. And we need to pray for them like Jesus did. Pray for them. Jesus didn't pray for the world at large because the world's passing away. He prayed for the people in the world who have been misled and lied to. The people who think that this world is all there is out there. There's nothing more than here today. Those are the ones he prayed for, those who will come. And he prays that believers who do know will care enough about people who are lost to tell them how to be saved. Maybe lost people are not impressed by Jesus because they don't see that it's that important to us today. That's my challenge to you. I told you this was a message for us specifically today as a church. What are we going to do going forward? We live our lives for the Lord in harmony and unity with other believers and create an attraction to those who are lost to come to know Him. The mission God has given us in our community is to move people on a simple journey toward Jesus. We're committed to that. We're united around that. We hope you are too. We hope that excites you and, and, and moves you. And we pray that the world may know and believe that Jesus has sent us into the world. And being sent, we will be faithful. That's our prayer. Can we pray for that right now? Father, I just come to you and Lord, I pray for us as a body. Jesus, when he was on the earth, he made a priority praying for his people. And God, I know that you still have a hand in that. God, I pray you would move us. I pray that you would invite, excite us. I pray that you will encourage us, Lord. I pray that you would draw us to yourself, that the mission of winning people to Jesus that was so passionate to him would become passionate to us as well. Father, I pray that we would care about lost people, that they would be on our hearts as they were on Jesus' heart. Father, that you would move us to speak out, to initiate conversations, to direct people to Jesus. And God, we pray for the lost, that they would hear you and see you through us, and that your spirit would move in whatever way your spirit chooses, that God, you would draw people to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.